welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. It is 10 a.m. Pacific time, maybe 10 01, 10 02, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. This is the Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour. Basically, uh, we are just trying to riff for an hour, kind of a random talk, anything we want to talk about, any topics are fair game. Uh, we're trying this out as a new show. We're going to do, we're going to go live on YouTube. And then we're also going to, I believe eventually here, start publishing the audio to our podcast as well. So if you're listening to this on podcast form, feel free to check us out live uh, and throw some questions in the chat. Uh, it's 10 a.m. on Fridays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Fridays, but I think that pretty much covers the intro. Do you guys have any topics top of mind? Mm, anything happened yesterday? I was traveling all day. So let's start I, with that. How was Mexico? What's the verdict on the, cause there's a, there's a Mexico thesis going around that they're like, the, that uh, they're due for sort of a economic boom here. Um, well, they need an infrastructure bill. That is number one. <laughs> They, they, could, they could use an infrastructure week. Um, it's hard to tell. I mean, I was in a kind of like a beach town. I wasn't in like, you know, Mexico City or another one of the giant cities, but it seems fine. Um, it's not like, you know, the cartels aren't taking over everything or anything like, you know, how those narratives might be out there. It's yeah. kind of like the United States, but with more smog and worse roads. <laughs> Okay. Work utilities. So potential, maybe. I don't know. All right. Any any investing takeaways? Uh the only one is that they love Coca-Cola. I think everyone knows that already. And that there's these things called OXOs that are spelled O-X-X-O. They're like 7-Elevens on steroids. I believe Coca-Cola actually owns part of them. And they're on every corner. It's like Every, almost every convenience store, at least where I was. So if anything, those are open all night. Everyone's going to them constantly. That seems like a good business. I don't know if it's publicly traded, not investing advice. I have no idea what the business looks like, but anecdotally, that was the only thing that kind of piqued my interest. Any sort of like infrastructure thing though, it's tough. It's tough out there. I mean, Some of the companies yeah. are little bits. I don't know. There's a lot of state run stuff that's hard to, you know, the customer service is quite poor, even compared to some of the stuff in the United States. How is your Spanish? Uh, I learned a bit. Un poquito. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, they talk very fast. So it's, yeah, kind of just, but, there was no like intro period. You kind of just went like <laughs> right into the thick of it. Yeah. I got to say, uh, Did Duolingo help. No, I tried that at first, but I churned. So sorry, any <laughs> any investors out there, I'm going to hurt your numbers. Um, but well, it is a good product. You're telling me, Brett, that like I would have expected that as soon as they saw you, they were like, "Oh man, this guy knows how to speak Spanish." <laughs> yeah, well, they know that they know that I'm not uh, not someone that speaks Spanish at all. Like you, you look at me right, yeah, like they they would know, like. Oh, I got to deal with this guy. I, I got to, I got to do something where I, I find someone I can speak a little bit uh, of English, but yeah. you know, it was fun. All right. Markets. Any changes right, in I, portfolio this last week? Anybody? Uh, I don't know. Was there any news? It felt like a no news week. It was I'm kind of a no news week. Yeah. All right. I just got the yeah. tweet out. So maybe some people will start watching this. We'll see. Let me go. Uh, let me do some news snooping here. I mean, there's. Yeah. We can always. We can always talk the Fed. The Fed. Okay. Well. Raise rates? Question mark. Yeah. The. Uh, the. There's a lot of talk about deflation, 
or maybe that was just from people that I was following of how there's some leading indicators that deflation might be coming. <laughs> I have no idea if that's true, but that'd be quite the round trip. Yeah, I feel like there's a potential though, because if there was this, there's this giant, and again, it's really hard to have. No one has a crystal ball with this stuff, but I feel like if everyone's building up inventories and every business has all these worries, I mean, there just could be an inventory glut coming. Yeah, over the Ooh, next actually, year, definitely possible. Did do you guys read the or listen to the Restoration Hardware conference call? No, but I I was told by everyone on Twitter to to listen to it. I hadn't. No, I didn't read it either. But it sounds like the American consumer. My first, my like, I my gut instinct was to think like maybe maybe someone running Restoration Hardware doesn't have his finger on the pulse of like the typical American consumer. But uh, I heard he's been quite the CEO. So, yeah, I don't know. He's yeah, the stock uh, is. Or go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Ian. I was just going to say, I know over the last number of years, you know, and the stock's down a bunch in the last year or so, but it's been a big winner. And I know that there's a lot of people who like doubted it for a while and then kind of came along and went, oh, wow, this guy's a genius and they're going in the right direction. And, and uh, you know, now the, the stock has taken another hit, but it always seems, it seems like I always see like these crazy headlines with restoration hardware where they take these big bets about changing up the business model or, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't follow it real close, but it just always seems like I always, um, I'm kind of intrigued by what's going on because it just seems a little out of the box. Like most people running restoration hardware wouldn't have been running it, uh, in this way, but, um, I don't know. It's hard to, like, I think since, see, since 2019, it's about, uh, up about three, <clears throat> three times or so. A lot of that coming kind of from the, the bottom in 2020, but still kind of an impressive chart to look at when retail was supposedly going to be dead. Yeah. yeah. It's up like almost basically 10 times since mid 2016. So have you guys done any, uh, any reading lately that's worthwhile to talk about? Um, reading like books or any, anything, anything, anything's fair game. Uh, I finished a book on the history of oil, which sounds boring. It's called, it's the one that Lawrence Hansel was tweeting about a, a while back. So I decided uh, yeah. to pick it up. It was pretty good. You, it goes through, it's like a thousand pages. So it was a bit of a slog and it took me a long time, but it was definitely, it wasn't super dense or anything. Well, I mean, it was kind of dense. But it's like it has storytelling and there's always, you know, big characters in the oil business. So it wasn't a boring read. Um, I don't know if I have any takeaways yet because I'm not like an, any sort of expert on the energy industry, but it definitely gave a nice timeline of like how we got to where things are today. Um, What's your now you got to place a bet on oil futures <laughs> oil futures yeah reading that book uh I, well it only went up to like the persian gulf war or sorry the first gulf war in uh like 1991 whenever the one over kuwait when I, iraq invaded kuwait but i think the big takeaway for me was when the middle east was like they hadn't really in the 50s kind of post-world war ii they hadn't like modernized much of their society at all and that it was just kind of their own choice but then when they discovered oil they got so rich so quickly that chaos just started. And then sometimes these dictators would rise up like in, um, well, in Iran, well, in most, most of the, most of the places and then places like Iraq and Iran and, uh, well, Saudi Arabia is more calm, but they would get very confident because of all the wealth they had with their oil and all the strategic, you know, importance they had. And that's kind of how a lot of the wars started. And then Venezuela too, as well, we get in, get in the mix. And it was interesting to learn how OPEC started in like the 19, early 19, or no, I don't know when exactly it started, but they, they really asserted their dominance in 1973. And that was kind of the big, one of the big things that kept that inflation going in the seventies. But then it was also interesting to learn about how they overplayed their hand in 1979. I forget all the details, but basically they kept trying to restrict supply, raise prices and 
then a lot of the Western countries started doing exploration, other, some other places like outside of Norway and the North Sea and Alaska, stuff like that. So pretty fascinating book, but definitely, definitely a slog. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I just, um, uh, I finished upon, I think upon your, I don't know if it was your recommendation, Brett, or not, but I read that Diary of the Great Depression. It was that uh, guy's like journal entries, like every night it was kind of not every night but um basically he was just like detailing the depression and uh it's fascinating to see the way people think and how similar it is to today um just around like the the markets broadly and he he also I, i thought he was a really good writer um it's it's interesting that they had like he recognized that stocks were cheap, um, but no one had any money. So it's like, what are you going to do? And at this, uh, it was like four years of just a standstill. Like apparently he kept saying that like America was just marking time. Like there was no, uh, there was like no jobs being created. Like the new deal came in and it like, tried to spur growth and there was just nothing that could happen to like change anything. Like the war pretty much just brought us out of it. Like it just gave jobs. It's kind of fascinating. Did you, did you read through that, Brett? Yeah. A while ago, I think it was before COVID. So I, I'd probably have to look at it again. I don't think I finished it, but I'll have to pick it up. Um, yeah. I remember it being pretty good and it's not like, it's more of like what someone's thinking. So it's kind of nice. It's different than, and a story and looking back in the 21st century to then and trying to pick up sources and you know how that can be not yeah. great sometimes. Um, so yeah. The thing that, the thing that surprised me was like, I think it was 1932. They broke through like their 1890 numbers, like the, the, Dow? the, the average, yeah. The industry or the whatever market average. Um, and then they'd never, it was like flat from 29 to 49 or 50 or something like that. So it was like, uh, I believe it's 53 or 54. So yeah, yeah. So like 25 years of no, no returns is insane. Yeah. And now every five years since someone's been predicting it, we could be, you know, who knows it could be happening right now. I, I could, we could never know, but it's so funny how everyone predicts that like, as per, throughout since that time, every year, probably every year, someone has predicted that the next, you know, Great Depression is coming. Except for, and even in the bottom of like 0809, at the top, while we're climbing out, uh, every bull market, every bear market, someone's predicting the next one. And I think it's kind of, I don't know, it's just interesting how we'll look back at one data point and a really terrible time. It seemed like there was such a confluence of factors that all came together to cause the Great Depression. And there's a lot of mistakes made by the government that they've learned now that, I don't know, predicting that again, it's just like, all right, you had one data point. Why, why do you think that exact same thing is going to happen again now? I don't know. That's always what comes to mind when I first read the, those things when people write about it. The, the big theme for our one second, and the, the big theme for me was that he kept writing about, he's like in the new deal, there was like all this um, basically stimulus and he, he was like, well, this is going to, it's a $30 billion deficit, which is insane. Like inflation's coming. And it just made me like, I don't want to grow up and be like the inflation guy. Like, oh, great. The deficit's larger. Like here comes inflation. Like what? <laughs> like 30 billions a rounding error today. Yeah. Using no denominators or whatever. I don't know if it's the denominator numerator, but not having as a ratio, it just doesn't make sense. I don't know. Reading the history of financial market stuff, it can help you understand how some of the things that people might say out today or some of the clickbait headlines that someone might write about the deficit or something are just nonsensical. Sorry, I interrupted you there, Ian. No, you're good. I, w- I was just, I've been thinking and it kind of dovetails off both of what you guys are saying, but I've, I have been thinking a lot recently about how most investors, it seems like 
not everybody, there's people who have strategies against this, but most people implicitly in their investing assume America is going to have a great economy um, and that it's going to continue to be a world dominant economy. Um, just like even, even looking at, you know, to break it down the numbers, right. That if you got a, a DCF, you're assuming, you know, 3% to 5% growth um, on a terminal basis in most cases, because you're like, Oh, we're going to get between, you know, that's going to be somewhere around GDP growth. Um, and it just, you know, you look at these periods like the Great Depression. I think one of the crazy things about that is that is how America was able to rebound out of that, right? Of going through a twenty-year period of um, no returns in the stock market, and then to have the returns since nineteen fifty-three or nineteen fifty-four is pretty pretty remarkable. But I always look at those charts of you know Japan from the eighties and nineties, and and then how I think even today it's never reached the levels it was at back then. Um, and it does make me, it does give me some pause every once in a while. And I don't know what, like, I don't know what the response is. Like, I think for me, I, if I'm, if, if America implodes then I'm imploding with it, but um, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know that there's like, I don't know that there's like a good thing, a good way to hedge that having the portfolio that I want. Right. I don't just want a portfolio full of like international companies only. Um, and I don't really want to make a bunch of bets on China, which would seem to be the other, the other major bet you can make, but, um, it just, it does every once in a while, you know, I've been thinking about it more recently, just with some of the geopolitical turmoil, but there can be long periods. And then there's also no guarantee that after those long periods of no returns, that there's, that there's an uptick at some point, right. There's always. Like there's other economies around the world that, and I think America is exceptional, but it just is that question of, is America always going to be exceptional? And, um, yeah. which, like I said, I don't know what the, I don't know if there's, if it's even a worthwhile discussion to have because I don't know what the, the response to that is, but, um, I think it is something that people should be aware of that in most of the time, most cases when they're investing, that that's, that's kind of an implicit bet that they're making. Yeah. I mean, so much is, would you guys saying. agree with that? Yeah, that is it's a bet you're making. Yeah, but I don't know if it's something that's worth focusing on because I don't know if it's at all predictable. Right. Also, I don't know if there's anything like if I make a, if I'm long stocks and a depression comes like if, if there's a great depression like scenario that happens, I'm not going to capitalize on it either way. Like it's just not going to happen. And I that's kind of the perspective I got reading through that guy's diary was like some people like detecting the irrational exuberance in 1929 wasn't hard. Like everyone could tell, but then they thought they bought the dip when it dropped 65, 70% and it dropped two thirds from there. And it's like, and these companies earnings got wiped out. Like the, the dividends were eviscerated. Like the only stock I remember performing. Okay. I don't even know if there was any stocks that performed okay. The only thing you could do was be long U.S. Treasuries. That was like it. That was the only way to play it. And I don't really, I don't know if that's the way I want to. <laughs> I don't know if my, I want my portfolio to look like that. It's interesting. Yeah. The Gosh, I don't know. Like, it's hard to make. Like, a bet like that is really hard to make. I kind of just think no matter how good a business is doing, the stock market could fall as much as it wants and it can rise as much as it wants, depending on people's sentiment. I kind of think today, and now this is always famous last words. So whatever, clip this in 30 years and laugh at me. Uh, doubt anyone will do that. But the, it, I think this time might be a little bit different because there's the complex of retirement accounts and Vanguard, BlackRock, 401ks, whatever, all that stuff, Fidelity, whoever that has a permanent, flow of buy demands i just as long as people don't get spooked out like in a total reversal and think that the stock market because now generally like what 50 percent of the united states population i think is invested in the stock market and i believe that many you know have a 401k so they're contributing to a buy bid and everyone's you know that's i just think that sort of demand is going to be there plus with um 
Oh, and this might change if interest rates rise because it'll be harder to do buybacks, but buybacks also as well can really help with that. That sort of financial engineering can help if your stock price falls 90% and your business is still fine. If you can buy back all your float, I think a good example of that was Dillard's recently where all investors had given up on them except for a few like, um, who was it? The Buffett, not Buffett, but one of his protégés, uh, Weschler. It was either Ted Weschler or Todd Combs plus like David Einhorn were the only big investors and Dillard's was basically forgotten. Everyone said it was going to shit and it kept going down and down and down, but they bought back all of the outstanding stock that people were willing to sell. And then once that happened, the stock went up 4X. I think buybacks can also be helpful in a scenario because that sort of, that sort of thing just wasn't possible. Well, maybe it was, but it was way, way harder in 1932 to do that. I just don't think the economy, as long as, you know, the infrastructure we have, digital and, and analog, um, stays afloat. I think that's not a huge concern to worry about. But again, I don't really like focusing on the macro stuff in general. So I think it's kind of just the uncertainty we all have. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning... Get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Interesting tidbit here. Uh, so I, I, I tweeted this out, but it says, in one of his like diary entries, he says, as I look back over the record of the stock market since 1932, many remarkable results can be seen. So there, it was like, there was sort of a nine, like 1932 was like a low, low, like it, it never dropped below that for the next, since then, like it just hasn't dropped below that number. Right. Um, he says stocks that sold at receivership prices are now selling at substantial values. Here are a few extreme examples showing quotations in 1932 and 1936. Philip Morris went from 50 cents a share to $90 a share in four years. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> that might be the best returns on a single security in that short of a time that I can think of. Yeah. No, well, 19. 19- Okay, I have Radio Corporation of America, which is the bubble stock of the 20s, was went from one to 500 in a decade. Hey, radio is the future. It was. <laughs> everyone was, everyone was going to get one, and they did. NFTs are the new radio. No, well, I'd say there might be a certain electric fuel company that is the, uh, the radio corporation, <laughs> but that's, that'll open up a whole can of worms. Um, I think we, okay. we probably just lost half our audience. Well, I'm seeing here there's three people watching, and I think two of them are me and Ian looking at the chat. So good. Well, we got a we got a good. Uh, we're we're staring up the mountain, and we can we can climb up. You know, we'll, we'll keep yeah. going. Uh, I was gonna say something else, or ask another question about uh the 1932. Oh, oh, there's an article from Ben Graham during the time about how I think like half of stocks publicly listed were trading below it's e- it was either working capital or cash. So there was like, I think maybe they had both stats. So like a good portion of stocks on the market were trading below their net cash position, which that it feels like it would be very difficult giving the buybacks now for that to ever happen, but you get close, I guess yeah, anything's possible. Yeah. I, I, I think the article was like titled like the stock market's worth more dead than alive right now or something like that. But it was, uh, th- there were so many scenarios like that where they were trading below net cash and it was like a positive earnings company that they simply had no product demand anymore. 
and their earnings got wiped out. So it went from like net cash to cash burn. Or, I mean, if you had the long enough time horizon, you were going to be fine. But like with no one able to buy stocks, you rarely caught, like, I feel like it was hard. (laughs) It was probably pretty demoralizing for like four years or eight years at one point of like just no returns, despite like value being accreted. Yeah. Well, yeah, that can happen. Eight years. Yeah. I mean, it's been longer for some companies, right? What was it at the bottom of 1921 was the same as like 1906, the peak of 1906. That's pretty long time too. Like that can happen. Could it have been the top in 2021? Maybe, probably not, but it's always possible. Yeah, but I think like I think that is an interesting question though, because what do you do like in a in a situation like we are now? And you never know what's coming next. And I tend to be uh pretty fully invested um yeah. at all times. Sometimes I have a little bit of cash for a month or two as as it comes in, but um but it like you know, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, but we've got 60 plus years for all of us still on this earth. Um and so I look at it and I think, you know, once I started hitting 40, 50, 60, 70, that I probably would be making some different decisions about my uh, allocations and maybe, and getting in a little more of a preser- preservation mode than, than a growth mode, but which is probably a reversal for me. I would have used to think that I would have stayed fairly aggressive all the way throughout. And who knows, I've got a lot of time between now and then, but I do look at those periods of, those long periods of just nothingness and the odds are that you're going to be in one or two or three of those throughout your lifetime. And, um, it would really, really suck to get one of those at the wrong time. Right. hundred yeah, percent. I see why so, so many like older people, and I like two years ago, I would have thought like when I was looking at like older people's portfolios, I would have thought like the only thing that matters is total return. And then it's like, you know what? No, like if you can take a like a fixed five percent after a certain age, take it. Yeah, yeah. Every, At I mean, least with a portion of your money. Yeah, everyone's portfolio makes sense when you learn like what they're. Well, I wouldn't say everyone's, but <laughs> a lot of people's portfolios make sense when you understand what when when they tell you their goals. And that's or, the beautiful thing about the market experience. too. Yeah. 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 The past experience helps a lot too, but I'd say that is the beautiful thing about the market is you can, with all of the products that are out there today and and even just different stocks and diversifying, you can set up all sorts of different, you know, you can pretty much find every point on the risk and return curve, right? If this is how much risk you're willing to take, here's going to be your, you know, expected return. Obviously that doesn't always correlate to to what your return is going to be, but um, on an aggregate, on average, that the, the points on the line are very dense, right? It's not like you can either do, you know, all bonds and no stocks or all stocks and no bonds. And like, there's, there's all sorts of mixes and other, um, other instruments that are in there. And it just, it feels like a great day to or a great age, probably the best time ever to be an investor in terms of um, availability of options. So you can really find something that matches your, your risk tolerance and kind of, the things you want to achieve in your life. It's, I think it's probably, there's never been a better time to really match your, like I said, your risk tolerance and what you're looking for with um, a product in the market. Combine you have options. Uh, there's definitely more options. Today. <laughs> there's just more, there's more degenerate option trading. Ooh, okay. And I mean, you're... options like not like, not like puts and calls. I mean, there's like <laughs> oh, more... okay. I, I thought you were making that joke. I, I'll, I'll make that joke. Yeah. Well, to maybe take it in that direction, one piece of news this week was um, GameStop announcing their their stock split mm, uh, and rising. You know, it's like everything. Value creation, with, Ian. <laughs> right. It's value yeah. creation, but it, I think the last I saw it had risen like ten percent in after hours. It looks like it's down a little bit today, or not down a little bit today, but down off of its early day highs. <laughs> Have you ever heard about? Have you ever heard of slicing a pizza? I mean, come on. <laughs> have you heard of that? Yeah. Any, any? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? It is. I. It is just a strange phenomenon that's happening. I think because wow. 
it's this weird thing where now it's getting like priced into where people expect it to go up and it's always that expectations game and so when there's enough people that are expecting it to go up it it finds a way to uh finds a way to go up Um, i want to make a video of like a pizza with eight pieces and then like slice a ninth and then be like value creation (laughs) yeah i want yeah uh gosh i don't know i don't really have any thoughts on game stock Ooh, well, that was a slip there. Game stock. I know people call it game stock by accident. Uh, was that like this week they announced that split? Is it just? Yeah, that was yesterday, I think. Okay. Well, here's something that tails into that. Robinhood announcing extended mm-hmm. hours. Saw that. That's a good story. It's a good idea for like once people are at the bar on Friday nights, like being able to like <laughs> risk it all on out of the money options. This will be huge for the industry of embarrassing yourself trying to pick up women. It'll be yeah. amazing. Um, <laughs> the uh, I don't know. So this, I just want think, to see this put call spread. <laughs> yeah, like look, like the market's closed, but Ramha's open it. It's saying I'm up a lot. We're doing this thing. It's called a. Uh, Short squeeze or gamma squeeze. You ever heard of it? It's like those, you know, talking the talking to the girl memes. But uh uh I think it's good for Robin Hood's business model, which is just based on volume, really. But yeah, dude, I feel like it's you know. terrible for people. You I, I would honestly want it to be in the I would argue in the opposite direction and shorten trading the day trading day by four hours and only have the market open for two hours from like I don't know uh 10 a.m eastern to 12 p.m eastern how are we they don't need that? any more how are they doing that like logistically uh they're just gonna like you know they have their partner citadel or two like whatever the market makers and they'll just yeah float it themselves yeah so those people will just route orders huh robin hood should have enough liquidity i would think given they have like 20 million users right so it's almost worth like I almost want to buy them as like an emotional hedge since I hate them. It's like, at least if like they do well, it, it'll frustrate me, but it'll make money. Yeah. I feel like the real and the real thesis there is to buy the publicly traded. I believe it's Virtu. I might be pronouncing that right. Virtu. Yeah. Virtu financial financial. They're a market maker that I feel would benefit from Robinhood. And they said Robinhood said they're going eventually to 24 hours a day trading which i mean which like you said is is great for robin hood's business model at least in the short term that they're getting more volume through there but like i think it's it would arguably be better for most investors you know obviously not for anyone who's skilled in trading but um for most investors i think it would arguably be better if you could only If you could only, uh, I was about to say vote on your stocks, but uh, buy stocks and sell stocks uh, four times a year, right? If you had it on on your your quarterly your quarterly dates and they report earnings, and then you get to make up your decision about when you want to buy or sell in that that quarter, it'd probably be pretty crazy. But um, yeah, and it does eliminate the liquidity where you can just get your money whenever you want it and all those types of things. And maybe you still could do that, but and I think that a lot of people's returns would be quite a bit better if. Um, if and I'm not saying this is what we should do. I don't think the lawmakers or anything like should come in and do this. But I just think as an interesting thought experiment, um, I think most people would find their returns were better if they were just touching it four times a year or less. Yeah, well, here's can, another. Oh, go you ahead, could Ryan. trade on Saturdays in like the in like the 20s, 1920s. Yep. yep. Short short day, a little morning. They'd get up, you know, hang out <laughs> with the fellas down on the on the street. Literally, like paper. you had to go down and do it. Yeah. yeah, make your make your little uh, Saturday night money. Yeah. All right, I have yeah. a question. What do you guys think of Zillow today? Now that it's X I buying, are you more or less interested in the company without it? I just I don't know about growth. I, I just don't, I don't know. I guess that's the biggest, or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would echo that sentiment, but I would say, I think when a company makes a big move like that to say, 
well, first of all, to get into iBuying and then second to be post iBuying. Um, like, especially to be post iBuying is kind of counter, counter narrative with a lot of what's going on in the real estate market. And so I think that intrigues me just because whenever someone takes kind of a counter position like that, I'm curious why and whether they have some sort of insight. Um, in this case, it was, I think the insight was we're losing a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Zillow is obviously like a great platform, you know, lots of people use it. You want to go check your, like the idea of being able to check your house value would capture the imagination of so many people um, to be able to get a live, a live estimate of your, of your house value. Um, and I think that's still kind of the primary, I don't know, I'm not an expert in Zillow, but I think that that's still a, kind of a primary reason why the platform has value. And it's just a question of, can they add, you know, they thought it was going to be eyeballing, but what's, what, how can they use all that data that they gather and all that, those eyeballs they get to actually yeah. make a significant amount of money. And I think that's the thing. That was I'm not an expert, so they may have a good plan, but I, I just haven't seen anything from them that I think is particularly intriguing in terms of a new plan. Yeah, I was kind of, I used it for, to find like a new rental. And I thought like, while I was using, I was just thinking like, this is like the single destination I'm going for search and discovery whenever I'm moving. Like if they can find a way or if they can be more involved in the transaction process, uh, it seems like a huge, they, they, it feels like they can monetize better. I honestly found it it sold off so many people sold it because they were getting out of eye buying. And I thought like, this is the right thing to do. Like, uh, I like them better than open door. <laughs> I can tell you that's probably the only thing I can say for certain. I like them better than open door. It just doesn't feel, I don't know. I buying just, there's so many, it's problematic. I think. Yeah. And I think I'm looking at their financials right now. Uh, don't someone can do a gotcha here if they have some sort of debt I'm not looking at, but and the gross profit could have been muddied from I I'm, I'm fairly but, familiar with the like entire situation now. I've been looking at it for a while. And it's I uh, mean what's their gross profit looking like annual? Like X, two billion? Two X billion? I buying or increasing? yeah, X I buying. Like two they billion. Have, they have thirty two percent EBITDA margins on their IMT business, which is like the internet, which is like their connection, basically like the advertising business. And then they convert a little over half of that to free cash flow. I think if you X'd out iBuying, I was reading some value investors club right up on it. It's like 5%, little sub 5% free cash flow yield on the IMT mm. business. Yeah, that makes sense. Looks to me like they're returning between six and 10 times gross profit, just eyeballing it here. So, I mean, the valuation doesn't seem crazy, but uh, I think there's some stuff that looks the same that I'm very confident can grow at 10% plus a year, just from a secular tailwind and Zillow, like they got a market. What's interesting about them is market share came to them with the platform, but now they got to take, dollars from other places in real estate and it's not one of those nice businesses where demand is just going to come to them if you kind of get what i mean like yeah i don't think the, outside don't of think the, the core real estate i don't think the real estate industry wants them to succeed which is strange because it feels like a lot of lead gen for them but yeah uh i just i think it's so uncertain it's like one of the most uncertain industries over the next even five years. Like what if I'm wrong and open doors, totally the answer. Um, I say that's a slow probability, but I think you know, they're just kind of possible. I think at this point they're two very different businesses. The uh, Yeah. But you know, well, that's true. There's a, it's a giant market. But what if Redfin's the answer? I guess it's probably a better question. Are they going to be the big winner? Are there I, think multiple still, winners? I don't know. I think it's still two very different businesses. Like there isn't, at this point, Zillow is really just a lead gen place for real estate agents. Like, and how valuable is that demand for the agents? The agents are going to bid on that. I think that's pretty important. And then where's the, where's the growth? Like, uh, that's the only, right? 
Isn't that saturated or am I I'd wrong? say ancillary products like um, more like being a, like a mortgage market, uh, like not market maker, but like not necessarily an originator, but uh, taking people from, okay, you're interested in this home to here's how you get in touch with the agent. Let's set up a tour. Let's get all the closing services done in-house through Zillow. And then you can also find mortgages, not necessarily originated by Zillow, but through Zillow. I think if they can just be across that entire transaction chain, there's a ton of value. It just, I spend time on there. And I think like, there's really no, it feels like the Google of real estate and yeah. there really isn't a close second. Yeah. I mean, that's where I go. But I feel like it's also susceptible to just like the swings of the real estate market in general. Like if demand, I don't see this happening, but if demand were to like fall, I think they, they'd see probably some dip in their top line as well. But yeah, I, I think the hard thing about the real estate market is there's, and this will be the hard thing for Zillow if they, like they've got the advertising businesses you talked about, but if they really want to make some other leap that's not eye buying, um, where does it come from? Where does you know, kind of the the big pivot or revolutionary part of the business come from? Um, yeah. And maybe they like like I said, maybe they don't need it, but I think I don't know. The real estate market is just so hard to to digitalize, kind of in all its aspects, and I'm not sure that we're getting. Like I always believe that technology can make things better, but I, I don't. I think we might be getting close to bumping up against at least the the low hanging fruit um, technological advances that, that help real estate. Because I don't know. I just I watch some stuff going on in Phoenix. Like I know some people who in Phoenix is one of Open Door's big markets, but I know some people who sold a house recently through Open Door, and just I, um, like the location was fine and stuff like that. But the house was just a like a a beat up house, like garbage house, like just totally like everything needed to be gutted on the inside. Open door buys it without ever doing uh, interior inspection. Right. Huh. They make their offer. They say they set some, they did like an exterior inspection and maybe they have their numbers all down and they know, Hey, this is what it costs to gut it. But they had, I think, you know, well, they have AI in. So. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly, and maybe it all evens out over over the span. But it was one of those types of things, and it like I'm not saying there's a huge bubble in the real estate market, or we're back in. You know, I'm not trying to to go like all big short on us here, but but it was just one of those things that troubles you seeing it. You're like, okay, these people are buying this house sight unseen, and just spending a ton, like putting in the most competitive offer of anyone. Like any of the investors who were looking at the house didn't want to put up this type of money for it by a, a fairly, you know, it was 10% higher at least than what the investors were willing to pay. Um, so anyways, there's just, there's just some weird, and I don't know how you get around that, right? Because then you start bringing in more of the human costs to go do inspections or, you know, negotiate more or do stuff like you gotta that. You got to grow slower. You got to grow slower. That's right. You grow way. slower and your, and your margins are worse. Yeah, right. I think, so yeah, maybe, it's, maybe if you're just buying up these big parts, maybe if you're just, I'm just not convinced that, like, maybe if you're buying enough of them, it all evens out and you get, you hit your margins, right? That it's just about the volume and you're just, <laughs> you're just knowing that in aggregate, this block of houses we're buying is going to, is going to be enough. But, but what if you keep those, what, what if you buy too much and then you've, the re like what if you can't resell them like what if you can't recycle them fast enough and you've got all those assets on your books like and interest rates are gonna rise yeah i mean right. so uh, that's what they did like in at the beginning of the pandemic i don't know if you guys remember this but they pot like open door paused their buying they said hey yeah. we're we're pausing we gotta see what's going on here which i think was probably like the prudent move it turned out that that wasn't really a real estate crash and you know like I said, I would never, I'm not in the business of like predicting crashes or anything like that, but I think the real estate market is still going to reset at some point. It always does. Um, and whether that's a big crash or a little crash, whatever. Um, but it hasn't really like home values have just been going up and up and up for years it's, now. It's and like, 
at some point, if they, if it, like you said, if they've got the, all that on their books, um, it's going to be a problem. It's like trading against someone who has inside information. Who, like, who has the inside information? The oh. homeowner. The like, homeowner. Oh, yeah. Like you don't go buying, looking at it. <laughs> buying the house from them, like if they know any potential flaw in that in what they're selling. So it's like, oh, you didn't see the, you didn't know about all the rats in the walls? Like, mm, well, yeah, we did. Yeah. I left here for two years. <laughs> you didn't know about the mold in the attic? It's like spreading mm, sucks. You have to right. have an inspector. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, who, like, well, on. I think that's the question. I think if you're going to invest in Open Door, I think the question that you'd want to answer is do they, as a machine and you know make you know their ai models and all this type of stuff but as a company where they're getting all this data and have this kind of overarching view of the market do is their information better and more valuable by having all this aggregate information and all these data points more valuable in total than each of the individuals insider information and selling them their house you see what i'm saying there <laughs> maybe, like, dude, maybe is there advantage is their advantage in total more than the like the disparity, the information disparity they're going up against in each of the individual home sales? The thing is, okay, there was so the the write up that I read on Value Investors Club. He kind of talked about three big pitfalls of I buying, and one of these isn't really attributable or. or Open door doesn't have this problem, but it was mostly for Zillow. And so the first was adverse selection, which is you're buying from someone that knows more than you on, on pretty much every transaction. The second one was that throwing a bunch of lowball offers out tarnishes your brand, at least for in Zillow's case, where it's like if you were thinking about using any of Zillow's services, like mortgages or closing services, anything like that, and they gave you like 15% under asking you kind of feel like they're going to jip you on something else too. So it kind of like tarnished their like brand in the consumer's eyes. Open door doesn't have that problem because they're maybe not cross-selling a bunch of services. But then the third one was you're essentially setting out a bunch of bids, like a, a bunch of low bids. And those bids are going to be met at the least opportune time. When So like you're going to be buying more houses when those houses aren't getting better bids which is kind of saying that like demand for housing is slowing more, your bids will be met. And then you're buying, then you've got more houses on your books in sort of a housing down market, which I guess is more, that's kind of like a macro thing, but, and maybe you can turn it off, like turn off buying quicker than that, but it just feels difficult. Like just a really hard business to get right. Yeah. I don't think open door has a path to success because Right now, they have an optimal option. The well, you could argue whether housing supply. I don't know what sort of end of the spectrum. Like too much supply, too little supply is their optimal environment. But right now, I think we're on the way, way too little supply. Right, and interest rates or mortgage rates were plummeting. They were all time lows. Okay, and financing in general, interest rates, whatever, all time lows. They're they finance their business by doing this. They basically buy a house, they finance it with short-term debt, and then they sell it. Right now, their gross profit is barely covering their interest expense. And interest rates are at all were at all-time lows. Mortgage rates are skyrocketing. So they have two problems. If interest rates skyrocket, their financing costs go through the roof. But mortgage rates also go through the roof or basically follow the same trend. They're going to go up as you know the Fed raises rates or whatever, as treasuries go up, blah, blah, blah. And we've seen that. Mortgage rates, you know, they're, they're anticipating the Fed uh, raising rates. Um, but that just means the housing prices will go down in general if that sustains. So open doors inventory is going to get written down. So there's just no path. I don't think there's a path forward. And they're in the most op optimal operating environment right now, and their gross profit can't cover their interest expense or barely covers their interest expense. I mean, what are we like? Wh where, where's the end game? Well, I'd love to know. 
just one more point on that. I, I'd love to know, and I don't think they break this out of their financials because probably wouldn't look too good, but I'd love to know what percent of their gross profit can be directly attributable to just a, a general rising market, right? That it's not that they're buying particularly well or they're making any value add um, improvements. Like how much of it is just by holding the house for a month or two um, and that so rise in value that, that it just goes up and, and what would happen in the alternative environment, right? That like, like Bresta, this seems to be a, in a lot of ways, a very optimal operating environment for them. So um, yeah, let me get some numbers there. Cause I interest expense, I may have been exaggerating it a tiny bit. Uh, in 2021, they had 730 million in gross profit. 544 million in sales and marketing, 620 million in GNA, 134 in technology and development, and 143 million in interest expense. So the interest expense, basically, if you do gross profit minus interest expense, which basically which gives them the room to you know reinvest, you got about 500 right no 600 million in gross profit while interest rates at all time lows. So if they're going to grow at all, say they're going to five X this business while interest rates are rising. I mean, that interest expense is just going to soar. And what if housing prices go down at the same time? It is not a capital light business either. Like it's pretty asset intensive because you have to, you kind of have to renovate these homes in a lot of cases. So whether you're doing that in-house or you're outsourcing it, you're going to be paying for renovations it's not like you've got 500 million of just like free money to throw into research and development. Like, yeah, let me give you another number here real estate inventories on their cash flow statement. So, this is from going from net loss to cash flow from operating activities. They invested our, the net basically gain in, in real estate inventories sitting on their balance sheet last year was 5.6 billion. They financed that through non recourse asset backed debt, I don't know the details of that, of 11.5 billion last year and repaid that non recourse debt or repaid $6 billion worth last year. So, again, that just highlights, in my mind, the short term financing here. I mean, I've said it three times, but it's those interest rates are going to rise on that, correct? I, I, I guess I'm not a credit guy. So, I could be totally wrong, but I would think if interest rates are rising in general, credit is harder to get in general, that's going to make this business just way, way, way tougher. All right. What did you guys think of uh, the Bloomberg article? Are you guys, I know Brett, you, you must. Lentil, the lentil one? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I like lentils. music to your ears. I don't, I don't uh, yeah. Uh... Ian, how are you combating inflation? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a good question. You th- I, I, hope you're not, I, I hope you're not having to euthanize your dog. <laughs> Not yet, but I'm I'm trying to uh, you know just dig a hole in the ground and cover myself with a rock and you know, kind of live my own hermit life so that so that inflation doesn't matter. Right? I can make my own my own currency. The uh, well, thanks for the bull case on Bitcoin. The uh, <laughs> um, the I mean the article I didn't ever read it, but it seemed like it was poor taste, right? Like he was kind of you know really poor written, poorly timed by someone like him, one of the richest men in the world. But I got to be honest, people get really upset about meat eating. You don't have to eat it. It's a choice. Lentils are pretty good for you. I don't know. And flavorless. Well, you got to eat some of my cooking. Yeah. You just got to put the right seasoning on it. Yeah. I got to eat some of my Indian, Indian doll. Uh, that I make. No, I mean, I have nothing against lentils, but now I do. <laughs> I, I like, I didn't have anything against lentils, but now it's like, how dare you? Like, uh, I lentils, mean, you think you're a substitute? Screw you. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm fine. The, you know, you're protected. Know. But inflation, inflation can't get you. Yeah. I don't know. The dog stuff, though, or what, what the pet stuff. I mean, yeah, no one's going to not have pets, but. You gotta admit, if Egypt's starving because Ukraine's in a crisis and we're spending what a hundred billion dollars a year on pets in the United States, I, I, I kind of feel you know that's a tough one. I don't no, know. We could re, no. we could we could reallocate those resources to the humans that are that <laughs> may be in need. Uh, but you selfish. Know. So what? So you'll save the cows from the meat eating, but you won't save the pets. <laughs> the pets will serve. He got them. you there. He got you there, Brett. You're you know, backed into a corner. No, I didn't say kill them. 
I'm just saying <laughs> that's what like we're you know. I mean, maybe we don't You're need just, Chewy. Maybe we don't need subscriptions to Chewy anymore. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying. I feel like dog we're allocating clean. a lot of we're allocating billions and billions of resources to pets. That's fine with me. I have nothing against that. But right. if people we, are starving are, around the world. Those resources could be going somewhere else. I feel like tech or I feel like pet innovations have been pretty negligible. Pet, you mean expenditures? Yeah. What What have been the big expenditures? Oh, uh, just like, the food. I mean, you it's think just the energy like for pet the food. Food's food pretty like efficient in terms of like it's just kibble like i know i'm just saying the dollar i'm just talking in dollar of course meals i'm just talking in dollar amounts i have no idea about it (laughs) yeah it just seems like whenever whenever there's a discussion like this for me like like 100 agree we don't want we don't want people starving in egypt obviously but i do find it kind of strange like to draw direct comparisons about like oh, well, if we just substituted this for that, right? We could just get rid of all test spending and do this, right? And and a lot of times these discussions, like people talk about like, oh, we allocate or we allocate to this or we allocate to that. And like the reality is like, we don't really do anything, right? It's kind of like the market in general and individuals specifically um, are, you know, choosing where all this stuff goes. And so like, I don't know, like I, I try and it's sometimes difficult, but try not to take these types of discussions at a, um, oh, yeah. of, as, as a zero sum game, All right. right. That, that, that we can, that we can have these types of discussions and say, Hey, how do we actually solve this problem? And that it's not, it's not really about all these other things that are going on. It's not like it's, just taking resources and moving them over. Yeah. Or else no one right, would have Starbucks coffee. Right, exactly. It's, Where could it's that like a six dollar weird... coffee have gone? You could have compounded that for the next fifty years. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's, the uh, I don't know. It is it is ironic though, and kind of funny when you realize the types of things that we spend money on as society and the types of problems that are still out there. Um, yeah. Just in well, the aggregate, and kind of that that interesting, <laughs> an interesting piece of, and like no one would say. Starbucks is more important than people having food, but each of those individual decisions, um, you know, adds up to where you're spending a lot more on Starbucks than. Yeah. It's definitely not what crosses my mind when I'm like ordering a coffee. Yeah. I guess this is the downside of a market economy, but there's plenty of upsides. The, yeah, I mean, you're not going to go like convince some middle-class family to give up their pets. I mean, come on, that's cruel. Like who would do that? That, that's evil. You're not going to convince them to do that just because people around the world are starting. They got to take care of themselves. But if you're trying to make a marketing message about that, then you do, you hit at the things that they care less about, that they spend lots of money yeah. on and they care less about. So um, what's the, what's the uh, people starving in Egypt thing? What's, what's that about? Oh, uh, well, that's just the theory that Ukraine, uh, you know, whatever, all the wheat stuff, Egypt was the biggest exporter of Ukraine wheat. So Importer, you mean? Importer, or? excuse me. Yeah, import importer of Ukraine wheat and Russian wheat, probably. So well, they should. Uh, Washington State's got plenty of wheat if they're looking for some. They do well. Yeah, one of the they're going to be the riding all wheat fields over here on the east side. Yeah, and and lentils. They're going to be riding Rolls Royces to the lentil festival this year. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I have read um, is that some of those reports may have been may have been overblown in the beginning just mm, because a lot of the a lot of the wheat production that's part of this ukrainian russian conflict is actually not really part of it that it's in parts of russia that are um that are far removed from this conflict and so shouldn't impact the growing season and there will be some impact is what i've been reading but then it, it shouldn't be um hopefully it shouldn't be devastating that there's there's still a lot of wheat production going on in russia and even in parts of ukraine that that aren't going to be impacted by this Conflict. that could be that could be Wait, great so it it is uh it's 11 o'clock do do we wrap up here yeah we finished so, on a fun topic thank you whoever brought <laughs> that up <laughs> all right we gotta we gotta take a hard line on the timing here trying to make it a power hour a power hour and a half um so <laughs> do we wrap this up with the disclosure is that should we do that uh yeah we'll have that in the beginning but i would do a disclosure and just kind of give 
you know, do the podcast or whatever ratings. Yeah. Feel free to give us a review if you're on Spotify because uh, we're getting up there and that actually helps sort of uh, new people find the show, which would be great. Uh, But without further ado, uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money or during the Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour is not financial advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners of Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>